0: Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the tragic passing of Chadwick Bozeman, and then we're joined for the rest of the hour by liturgist Aaron Nequist. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Happy Monday, as I know Brian loves to say. I don't mm-hmm. know that I love to say it yet, but I'm, on your behalf, Brian, I'm bringing Happy Monday To the forefront, Uh, a couple of things briefly before we get rolling here. You can find us on Facebook, Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post articles. You can send us messages if you have ideas for future shows or even thoughts on previous shows. All of that is helpful interaction. You can find the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribing, rating, reviewing helps us out a ton, especially since there's a couple other Common Good type shows. So we really appreciate all of that. And then lastly, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And uh, we would love to interact with you in any of those places. And we're super grateful for those of you who already do. I can't imagine there are a lot of people listening today on a Monday who haven't yet heard of the passing of Chadwick Boseman. But I remember watching uh, as the news was kind of breaking and the Internet, I mean, just erupted and all sorts of people offering far more than just condolences. I mean, I was pretty pretty blown away by like the level of like love and respect and then some Mm -hmm. of the quotes from him that I was seeing and then learning how long he had been struggling. And there was there was just a lot about him, honestly, that I I don't think I knew. I'd love to know how how that kind of hit you, Brian, as you were kind of becoming aware of the news.
1: Yeah, I really found myself reading uh, and listening to a lot this weekend, because as you said, um, the depth, especially in the African-American community, of the profoundness of this loss was really more than obviously, for obvious reasons, I would have known uh, that uh, not only him as an actor, but but just kind of the representation of the first black superhero. Right. And there was some really poignant pieces about uh, the pain of losing uh, the Black Panther and Black Mamba and Kobe Bryant tragically in the same year that were really, really poignant. But like you said, the Internet just blow up to the point that it is the most liked tweet in the history of Twitter, the tweet mm-hmm. his family shared about n- announcing his passing. Yeah, uh, And the other thing that stood out to me, in the age where you can't keep anything a secret, the fact that he ha- battled colon cancer for four years yeah. and nobody knew it, and he made some of the most iconic movies of the last however many years while battling colon cancer is an amazing story. So a tragic loss at the age of 43 and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was a really heavy story this weekend and many people obviously just profoundly sad over it.
0: Yeah. And there's a bunch of articles that we probably won't have a lot of time to get to, uh, but we'll share them on the Facebook page just so you can read them. Cause I think they were really, really powerful. One of the things that I did want to share was someone made it a, an edited version of a commencement speech that he gave at Howard university back in 2018. It's a little less than three minutes but I I just found it incredibly moving. So I'd like to play that and then we'll just respond with whatever time we have left.
2: Sometimes you need to get knocked down before you can really figure out what what your fight is and how you need to fight it. Sometimes you need to feel the pain and sting of defeat to activate the real passion and purpose that God predestined inside of you. God says in Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Graduating class, hear me well on this day. When you at this day, when you have reached the hilltop and you are deciding on on next jobs, next steps, careers, further education, you would rather find purpose than a job or career. Purpose crosses disciplines purpose is an essential element of you. It is the reason you are on the planet at this particular time in history. Your very existence is wrapped up in the things you are here to fulfill. Whatever you choose for a career path, remember the struggles along the way are only meant to shape you for your purpose. When I dare to challenge the system that would relegate us to Victims and stereotypes with no clear historical backgrounds, no hopes or talents. When I questioned that method of portrayal, a different path opened up for me. The path to my destiny. When God has something for you, it doesn't matter who stands against it. God will move someone that's holding you back away from a door and put someone there who will open it for you. If it's meant for you, I don't know what your future is. But if you are willing to take the harder way, the more complicated one, the one with more failures at first than successes, the one that has ultimately proven to have more meaning, more victories, more glory, then you will not regret it. Now, this is your time. The light of new realization shines on you today. Howard's legacy is not wrapped up in the money that you will make but the challenges that you choose to confront. As you commit to your past, press on with pride and press on with purpose. God bless you. I love you, Howard. Howard forever.
0: All right, Brian, so I'd love to know you know, when we first played that, you just said, wow, that's deeply inspiring. Yeah. What kind of jumps out at you?
1: So every year around graduation time, right, we'll play. We've done this We did this last year, some montages of graduation speeches, and they all kind of hit the same themes. But this one, uh, even not even considering his passing, but understanding what he was going through that nobody knew when he right. get, made this speech, I think adds a layer of just depth to it. But this idea right there, Ian, of of don't leave college. And this goes for even when you're older, like you're the goal is not a career and a job. It's a purpose. And I think um, that is a profound thing to think about, like, because we all need jobs. We all need to pay the bills, but he said, kind of shoot for your purpose and then find that what doors open up, man, powerful. And I'm always challenged when, uh, from speeches like that. But again, understanding what he was going through in that moment and to still be able to inspire and give a message of hope, I think is, is really amazing.
0: Yeah. I, I uh, shared this article out of the Atlantic that I wanted to read how it ended um, because there was a lot of people offering, I think some really pointed perspectives and then the photos and then the tributes of like young black boys and girls with their black Panther figure, you know, given the mm-hmm. one on forever, like just, Oh, man. Like a lot of people, you know, their initial response was just 2020, you're the worst, you know, which (laughs) a lot of people I think really, really felt. And then the more that you kind of drilled down into it, like what unrest we're seeing in our country, and our world right now, the grief that people are experiencing, not just with the pandemic, but the loss of loved ones and jobs and incomes and mile markers and all these, all these things. I thought, gosh, the outpouring was, it just felt really raw and really genuine, really authentic. And this is how this article out of The Atlantic ends. It says, I think of all the roles that both been played over the past four years in between chemotherapy and surgery. He must have been so exhausted. And yet, as Lee said, he was there every single minute in the moment. He portrayed with grace and mastery both the icons of our past and the superheroes who helped us imagine different futures. He gave us so much. And for that, I am immensely grateful. And like you were saying, hearing that speech in light of what he was already experiencing right. and not creating any stir fanfare around it, but like faithfully still doing his job and loving his family. And and in a way that I just, I find that rare, but also like deeply moving and the kind of thing that I'm comfortable saying, man, there's a lot about that particular posture, that character that is worth shooting for, to looking, looking toward. I think that's a really, really important thing. And just to say, and I know that so many other people have, um, our deepest condolences to the families and friends, people affected in ways that are you know, un- unthinkable and, uh, and probably still grieving in a really, really intense way. I am absolutely thrilled to have for the rest of the hour, my friend, the right reverend Aaron Nequist. Welcome to the show, sir. <laughs> hey, it's great to be with you all. Hey, I imagine a number of people listening will know who you are and your work and your background, but would you just take a minute or two
3: and introduce yourself to everybody? Sure, yeah. Um, well, I would say... At this point, I'm uh, vocationally, at least, uh, a liturgist. I was a worship leader for probably 20 years, and that has kind of expanded into more than just the singing, but also the prayers and the readings and the practices. And uh, a couple years ago, I wrote a book called The Eternal Current about my kind of journey from... I I call it a beliefs-based faith into a practice-based faith and how that is kind of expanded rather than just switch from one thing to another, trying to wrap my arms around both sides. And so, yeah, so really excited about this conversation. Uh, My family and I currently live in New York City, and I am uh, getting my master's at a seminary and trying to just keep making stuff. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome.
1: Aaron, I'm curious about some of that journey, and I know it, it probably could take our whole time here, but uh, having been in in churches that weren't liturgical, right, while you're out here, and now kind of going in more into that direction, just curious kind of Reader's Digest version. How did you get there? What's kind of your journey been?
3: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. that's In some ways, that's the entire book, so I can talk about (laughs) 10 hours about that. I think the short version is I realized um, I was, I moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, 2003 ish, to be the worship leader at Mars Hill Church. Mm -hmm. And when I got there, I had like, you know, just the classic worship leading toolbox Mm -hmm. Um, start with a loud song, second, go to a louder song, and then have an earnest song. And I just, I had the whole thing. And to be honest, I think that's a really great way to do it. I, I have no complaints about that. But what I realized is at the time Rob was talking about this big kingdom, like what God is doing in the whole world. And it was expansive and it involved not just celebration, but also lament. It involved not just worship, but also justice. It involved all these different things. And I realized, man, the one tool I have as a worship leader can't possibly Mm -hmm. capture the expansiveness of the invitation of what we're talking about. And so I thought, man, I, yeah, I am like trying to paint this Van Gogh painting with <laughs> one single color, mm-hmm. and it's a great color. I still do; I still love some of some of those uh, ways of worshiping. But I, I just started saying, "All right, how have Christians worshipped historically? You know, how are they currently worshiping in other traditions?" And started exploring and realizing there are these treasures that my tradition just ignored for some reason. And so I've been trying to reintegrate them into kind of a bigger hole.
0: Now a word that I hear a lot, I guess probably in the last five to eight years is is deconstruction. do you do you yeah. find that you had to go through what you would call a kind of deconstruction to get to where you're at now, or or would you use a different word or a different term? Yeah,
3: um, no, I, I think what I like is I had a friend explain to me once, um, healthy deconstruction is when you take things apart in order to understand it. Hmm. So like, say you have something mechanical that's not working, you deconstruct it to see all the parts and find the brokenness. Hmm. But the point is reconstructing it, you know? Right. Um, so in that way, uh, I think deconstruction is incredibly important, but it's not demolition hmm. because uh, demolition's easy. You can knock anything down, whether it's true or false or whatever, if you just hit it hard enough. But deconstruction, I think, is thoughtful. It's uh, and it's it's brave. It's bold. It's difficult, but it's really, really important. So, yeah, I've had to deconstruct uh, numerous parts of my faith. That's really-
1: hmm. And maybe for some people out there who, you know, they've only been in that stream of evangelicalism that you described in the beginning. Yeah. Curious, uh, how would you? for lack of a better word, sell them on liturgy. You know, maybe they're spirit of it. It's kind of a Catholic thing, whatever yeah. else. It might be. How, how do you paint that picture well, for people?
3: Well, you know, in the tr- tradition I grew up, liturgy was a dirty word. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like, that's what those people do. <laughs> we <laughs> are authentic and, you know, those kinds of things. But the word liturgy simply can mean the work of the people. So it's like what we do when we come together. So every church has a liturgy. I explained the evangelical liturgy a minute ago, three three rock or pop songs, um, (laughs) offering announcements and a sermon. That's not a bad liturgy. The question is, how does that liturgy form people over time? Mm. And so that's where I finally was realizing like, man, I'm serving the same meal every week. Wondering why the community isn't getting healthier. And so when I talk liturgy, basically what I mean is a worship experience that includes more forms of worship than just standing and singing. So that involves scripture readings, that involves um, a confession and assurance, a moment where we get to name our sin together and then hear as far as the East is from the West. That involves some readings that we do together, that involves silence, that involves uh, spiritual practices, and you better believe it involves singing together and uh So it's trying, I was explaining this to my wife uh, a number of years ago. She was like, why are we doing all this weird stuff during worship? And I was trying to explain it. I was, I was really inarticulate. And finally she stopped me and said, oh, so basically you want to serve a well-balanced meal every Mm -hmm. Sunday. Mm -hmm. And that was it. I just remember thinking I've been serving chicken and rice and a dessert and it's a great meal, Mm -hmm. but it's not nearly enough to sustain a whole life. And so been trying to add food groups. You know, that analogy breaks down at a certain point, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we need some need some new food groups. I,
0: I think that's a great analogy
3: actually. And I and I don't know
0: how candid you can be, but I'd I'd love to know kind of the rest of your journey because you know, yeah. you, know you and I both have Judson in our background and yeah. Mars Hill for a lot of us, we were like learning how to preach from Rob Bell and what yeah, was so later later. and then and then yep. you come to Chicagoland. What happened between Mars Hill and then where you, you know, eventually started the practice and then eventually moved to New York?
3: Yeah. Um well I moved you know, Mar- Mars Hill was especially at that time, I mean, literally one of the most exciting yeah. Experience, you know, uh, Christian experiences of my entire life. And mm. it was experimental and it was exciting and it was crazy. I mean, I could tell you some of the really difficult parts of the chaos of it all, but it was so exciting. And so then I came to Willow Creek and I was one of the worship leaders at, on the weekend. And um, I thought naively and probably arrogantly, I was going to keep bringing the experimentation we were doing at Mars Hill to Willow Creek. Hmm. And if you've been to Willow Creek, you will know that that probably was was never in the cards. (laughs) And so I banged my head on that wall for, I think, four years. Hmm. And that was very difficult. Um, Everything can change a little, but I think most things... Can't really change as much as we all desire them to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, at a certain point, uh, the senior pastor actually pulled me aside and just said, hey, listen, we're never doing what you want us to do on the weekend service. Like, that's not what these weekends are for. Mm -hmm. But then he said, but we know people need it. And so out of that, we started a Sunday night specifically practice based, neoliturgical, Eucharistic, you know, communion was right at the center. And uh we started that gathering. And that was a, about that's a perfect segue because
0: coming up next, I'm gonna ask oh, a little bit more about that if that's all right. Because oh, I think a lot of yeah, people right they're leaning in now like, wait a minute. Okay, so a liturgical gathering at a place like Willow Creek. How does that even work? So I think it's one of the coolest titles in Christianity to be called a liturgist. I've heard other people (laughs) claim it. And then I think, I don't know that you actually are, but you, my friend, (laughs) actually are a liturgist, but your experience though has taken you all over the place. And you talked a little bit in the first segment about deconstruction versus demolition. And where you kind of left this off was four and a half years, kind of main stage Willow feeling like, you were buttoned up against some, some pushback maybe in terms of like what you were wanting to bring, but, but also yeah. some awareness though from the leadership. They're like, hey, we still know that people need this. And so that actually morphed into a pretty interesting experiment at Willow. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah,
3: it, we just called it the practice. And the, the central heartbeat of it was we would say every, every week we want to be the kind of community that doesn't just believe things about Jesus, Mm. but learns how to rearrange our lives in order to put his words into practice for the sake of the world. That's good. And there's a lot in there, but it all really, really mattered to us. And basically Mm -hmm. we, we just realized at a certain point Jesus wasn't simply saying believe my words are true. Right. Jesus was saying follow me. Yeah. You know, the last line uh, the last uh, paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount was if you hear my words and put them into practice. Right. You'll be like the man who built his life on the rock. And so we said we're we're sick of just living in our brains and hearing messages that we then agree with and then go on with our day, but we want to learn how to flesh it out. So, mm-hmm. so we just said, uh, we kind of talk about deconstruction. We deconstructed what a gathering uh, could and should be. Mm. And we tried to bring in as many um, influences from as many Christian streams as we could. Just what is the best wisdom? Um, and it was, I mean, it was so... You know, difficult and lots of work and all that, and it was one of the most meaningful experiences of my entire life. Wow. Wow. Mm. My my boys just asked me. My nine year old said, "Do you miss the practice ever, Dad?" And I'm like, "I miss the practice all the time, mm. and I I probably miss the practice team um, almost every day." So it's yeah. just a very very meaningful experience.
1: Aaron, I'm curious, you know, we probably have some past Ian and I are pastors and probably have pastors listening who are going, yeah. man, I am really resonating with what he's saying, but I'm terrified to change my church. <laughs> I, mean, I don't yeah. want to do it. What's what's one or two words of advice you'd give maybe to a pastor or a ministry leader out there kind of feeling that urge in them?
3: Yeah, well, um, I, I would say, um, gosh, I have so many things I'd want to say. <laughs> I mean, one of the one of the complicated things is. Um, In our current systems, um, most of the time, the people with the authority to make change are also people gifted to give lectures. Mm. And so, you know, we all approach the world through the lens of what our gifting is. So, we're like, well, what what can I give? Well, I can give this great lecture. And Mm. lectures are really important to a point. Um, like lectures were really important at the practice, but we always kept them in the 12 minute range Hmm. and our clear invitation to anyone preaching was please bring the full weight of, you know, if we're looking at a text or if we're looking at a practice, but it needs to be, um, a springboard to concrete practice. Mm. Mm. So the, the, the ending point of the sermon cannot be implicitly or explicitly. So does everyone agree with me? (laughs) Which is often how we're preaching. Here's what this means. Here's the applications. Do you agree? And then everybody goes (laughs) instead. We're trying to say, all right, here's the, 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 the text. Here's the implications. Now here's the way to flesh it out. Let's practice together. And so we always had twelve minutes of lecture and then fifteen to twenty minutes of then practice where we could embody it and work on it, which was great then because then all week long people could continue doing that doing that practice that so great. so maybe that's that 's less of what you're asking that 's more an observation. Uh, maybe I would say this when we were at Mars hill and we were st- my worship leading partner and I, uh, Troy Hatfield, we were realizing we want to move beyond f- what five songs are we singing? You know, right. we want to we move to what worship journey are we going to go on this Sunday as a community? And so one of the first steps we took is we just committed to each other that every Sunday we would include one non-singing way of worship.
0: Hmm.
3: And it was just, it was just a, a, a tiptoe. But, you know, 52 Sundays a year, by the end of the year, we had had 52 um, beyond singing ways of engaging with God and each other. And that really started stretching us um, beyond the stand and sing time to the let's open ourselves to God through these different ways. So maybe that would be my advice. What is one step? Um, you can take on a consistent basis. See, I love that for so many
0: reasons, not the least of which is that shows some real pastoral awareness, right? You didn't like have this awakening and then you just upended everything. Oh, You're like, yeah. We're wearing ropes from now on. Deal with it. Like <laughs> that's it's, right. That's right. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, we can't change everything and we're still probably gonna need a loud song up front and a contemplative right. song, but we can we can implement this one small thing and that's it's been interesting even watching your journey and you mentioned the book, which I cannot recommend enough, by the way. The Eternal Current is oh, fantastic and takes a deeper dive in all the stuff you're talking about. I'd also love if you to have a chance, though, to talk about a new liturgy, because this is something that I've yeah. been following. And honestly, Cards on the Table, I've been really blessed by over the years. And I'd love for other people to know
3: about it. Thanks. Yeah, I think when when I, it started real briefly at, when I was at Willow and I was really feeling frustrated to not be able to bring more of this integrated liturgical thing on the weekends. So I said, well, you know what? I have a little pro tool set up in my basement. I'll invite some friends over. And we started saying, what would we create hmm. if given Blue Sky? Which I would say to any creator out there, um, there's there's probably places in your life where you are frustrated by the limits of the container that you're being asked to fill with content. Well, bless that container. Um, You're not in control of, of making it bigger. So, so give as much as you can to it. And then when you have things beyond it, find new containers or make new containers. So anyways, so we started just saying, all right, we're going to create these 20, 25 minute journeys and they would have songs and readings and scripture. And we would just take a theme like, you know, new liturgy four is about creation. Hmm. And so we said, well, what, what is an, what is just this worshipful celebration of God's creation and how do we invite people into that? And the new one uh, that we just released uh, about a month ago is based on the Lord's prayer. And so it's 25 minutes and we just went line by line. And I'd offer like, you know, 30 seconds of reflection and then invited into some sort of practice. And it has been, it's been really, um, it's been an exciting, exciting journey. And where, where can people go to learn more or to purchase or download any oh, of that? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, AnewLiturgy.com. AnewLiturgy.com. There's uh, eight liturgies right now number 7 is free um we i we created david gunger and i created this um lament liturgy hmm. and i just got to the end and i'm like how do i charge people to lament <laughs> so right. if you if if you a need some help lamenting which most of us do yeah and uh i would say in our in our intense and crazy world that we're in right now, we all need to practice lament. So Same. if that would be a way to start, especially because it doesn't, wouldn't cost you anything.
0: Well, wow. Just again, that is anew liturgy.com, dot liturgy.com or yeah. aaronnequist.com. You can learn more about yeah. him. and his What I want to ask you, Aaron, is something that I've observed in you for a while now. I feel like you have this unique capacity to sort of hold activism and contemplation intention, I, I feel like it's easy to sort of land in one of those two categories, mm. but sort of bridge them together in a way that is both engaging with what's happening in the world. Like, you know, Carl Barth talks about do theology with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Sure. I feel like you yeah. you live that out, but you you also are calling people to what really we've been talking about in this show is contemplation, a practice-based faith, solitude, silence, lament. You know, those, mm. are, those are often kind of part and parcel with your activism and your political commentary. I'd love to know, what does it look like to have a foot in both of those worlds during such a divided
3: time? Mm. Oh, man, what a great question. And I mean, this is as crazy and tumultuous and scary of a time as I sure remember in my lifetime. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is just unbelievable, well, maybe first an observation, and then i 'd love to read a little a little quote. Um, the observation is for probably the first thirty years of my life, I was neither a contemplative nor an activist hmm. and um, and i don 't say that like with shame or anything I just that i just wasn't that was not part of my journey up to that point. And what's fascinating is I didn't plan it this way, but um, through some heartbreak and faith disillusionment, Hmm. I I found some contemplative streams and then beginning to swim in the contemplative streams, open myself up to some of the things going on in the world And then I felt drawn into some activist streams. Interesting. So it it was never intentional. It wasn't like I read one book and now I need to be a certain way. It really was, you know, in crisis. How do I stay a Christian? Hmm. Can I? Hmm. And out of out of that heartbreak, found this the beauty of the contemplative invitation, and then that opened me up to the world. So I, it, it it was it was as surprising to me as anybody. Um, but I was trying to wrestle with this in, in my book because, um, uh, like I mentioned a minute ago, uh, this, the conversation of faith and politics is just fraught with disaster. Yeah. And so here's how, let me just read this. And then maybe this can be a, a jumping off point. This is how I tried to articulate why I'm trying to engage both. And I just wrote this, if the church is not political, It is irrelevant to the world that God so loves. Mm. But if the church is partisan, it becomes a tool of the empire. And so I tried to flesh that out. I just said, being political means we are engaged in how our society is organized If we want to love our neighbor, we will naturally get involved in building systems that lead to flourishing and fighting to change the unjust systems that target the poor, weak, and marginalized. Mm -hmm. We can't pretend to love our neighbor while we ignore the realities that hurt them. Mm -hmm. But the moment we tip into wholesale support for one party against the other, we take our eyes off our neighbor and we join the system as an apologist for only half the story. Wow. And so finally, neither party is fully aligned with God's kingdom. And we need to find a way to engage the full reality of society without selling out to one side. Wow. Mm. So that was my attempt to articulate that that tension.
1: Yeah, that's really good, man. And so timely. Obviously, we talk. It feels like every day about the partisanship around us. I'm curious. Yes. Speaking of politics. Yeah. Uh, You know, the line we'll hear often is, hey, pastor, hey, church, just preach the gospel and the rest is going to take care of itself. How would you answer to that?
3: Well, that only works if two things are true and both have to be true at the same time. Um, One, you have to reduce the gospel to a tiny enough version that only has to do with eternities. Hmm. So if your gospel is small enough, You really can say that. Just preach the gospel, the the ticket to heaven uh, transaction. So if your gospel is small enough, you can say that. And then if you are um, insulated enough by um, the privilege of your life to not have to deal with the pains of a system that is built against you. Then you can say that too, and I say that as a middle-class white, um, straight uh, Christian male. I mean, I'm I am all the you you take all the boxes of privilege. I have all of them. So, (laughs) and so I think that's how I made it to thirty before I was an activist. Yeah, just didn't affect me. I mean, really, politics don't really affect me. and so, unfortunately, and I say this to my great shame, because it didn't affect me, I just didn't want to have to deal with it. Yes. Um, and so, I think we need to listen to our friends uh, who are on the underside of power. Yeah. And if they're saying, yeah, just preach the gospel, that's fine. Well, then then, then there's a little more credence to that. Sure. But when they are crying out and we say, yeah, just 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 preach. Don't worry about that stuff. Mm-hmm. That is literally killing them. Yeah. Um, that's not loving our neighbors ourselves. You know, that's doing something really different. Um, I remember the first time I read the quote from uh
0: from MLK he said something like Laws can't change a human heart, but it can keep them from lynching me. Yeah. And that idea, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The heart yes. obviously still really, really matters. However, right. in course. the meantime, yeah, I'm trying to prevent being killed as well. And I yes. You know, even since yes. the time of George Floyd, Brian and I have had a number of black and brown voices on the show where we've just sort of lamented how much we didn't know, how much we yeah. were unaware of. And it's right. it's been a, a really eye-opening but difficult season. I'd love for the last minute or a half or so, I know you're also in seminary. You're just a lifelong learner anyway. And just to say it out loud before we run out of time, I'm super grateful for you, man, and your voice oh, well, and your work in the world. I'm really, really grateful. I, no, I don't mean to what are, you, what are you learning right now? Brag on your seminary if you want. Like, What's kind of stirring in you for the future?
3: Yeah. Well, um, I'm loving. Uh, I'm here at General Theological Seminary, and um, it's a, an Episcopalian seminary. And I don't think I'm going to join the Episcopal Church, um, mm. but I really respect it. And I love being outside of my comfort zone. Right, I And mean, that is a really stimulating experience. And so yeah, I think the the biggest thing is I love hearing I love learning things that not only did I not know, I didn't even know that category of conversation existed, you know? <laughs> right. Um and so that's been really stimulating. It's been stretching. Um I mean, I'm often th- the minority in my classes in a number of different ways. And that's really, uh, again, as a white dude from the suburbs, I'm not used to that. And, um, it's been really, uh, really helpful and stretching. So yeah, I'm enjoying learning. Um, I'm, I'm worried about our country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I, I'm thinking a lot about that and, uh, but yeah, trying to, I, I was just praying this morning, actually. Um, I want to be an instrument of peace. Yeah. I want to be a peacemaker, hmm. so not not a peacekeeper, hmm. um, but a peacemaker. And I know that involves conflict. Yeah. Um, but it, it involves conflict to the end of 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 life, yeah. of hope, of possibility. Yeah. And I, I I don't know how to do that in this season. Um. But that's the desire. Oh, that's so good, man.
0: That other voice you have been hearing is Aaron Nequist. He's a worship leader songwriter. He's also got a brilliant podcast, the author of a book called Eternal Current. You can learn more at com or a New liturgy.com. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time thank to join us today, man. Great to be with you guys. Likewise. Appreciate it. I don't do this all the time, Brian. I feel like it's become a bit of a Monday normal to kind of just hit a bunch of stories real quickly. And yep. uh, I fair warning, some of these stories are Are pretty intense. And we don't have, I don't at least have a lot of commentary on them. Maybe we will later in the week, but I felt that they were at least current enough and important enough for us to spend just a little bit of time talking about. So I I know there's a bunch in there. I'll let you just choose which one you want to do first.
1: Yeah, I guess I want to start here because I feel like it's both um, uh, encouraging, but also I was like, why did I not hear more about this this weekend? And so it's simply this. Uh, that authorities have located 123 children in Michigan's Wayne County area just last month. Operation Michigan Safe Kid placed an emphasis on locating missing children who were victims of sex trafficking. The operation found 123 of the 301 children reported missing in the area. They were physically located and interviewed before being turned over to Child Protective Services. And at the same time, uh, you read another article from the weekend that nearly 40 missing or endangered children have been rescued by federal and state agents in Georgia as part of mm-hmm. Operation Not Forgotten. 13 missing children were found, and additional 26 endangered children were rescued during a two-week operation in Atlanta and Macon. And so, I want to celebrate these stories and go. This is great that that these that these children who had been kidnapped or lost or in danger, whatever had uh, caused them to be put in danger and put into, it appears, child exploitation, child sex trafficking, abuse, whatever else it might be, that they were found. But I honestly, man, when I read these stories over the weekend, I was like, I must not be understanding these because this feels like, like, like the biggest story that I could possibly even read right now. I, I don't know. So I want to celebrate that. And at the same time, just admit that it causes me some confusion. We've had a lot of people on here talking about sex trafficking and and just how prevalent and scary it is in our culture. And then you read stories like this and you're like, oh, my goodness, this is this is craziness.
0: Why, Why do you think we've not heard more about it? That's exactly why I included it in this segment, because I had seen a couple of friends post it. And I thought, no, if this was real, I would have seen it. All over the internet and i i haven't and as best as i can tell it is legitimate why, why do you think it's not getting the attention that you obviously think it deserves
1: i honestly don't know because i saw people tweeting on it or facebooking trying to take like a you know a liberal media thing on the or, or like a sure. you know that kind of take but i still don't understand even how that take it makes any sense right like what would it be gaining the media not to let in on this i I, honestly, I, I know we're supposed to have answers. I don't know the answer unless it just happened so quickly that they didn't have a, a ton of details on it. Um yeah. But yeah, it felt like this would be the type of thing that would just be celebrated all over. So I don't have a good reason. Some people are trying to put up really snarky, cynical reasons that I don't think really hold water. So to be honest with you, it doesn't make for great rating. But I, the answer to
0: your question is I don't really know. Well, one of the people that we have had on the show before, I want to at least give some props to Simone Halpin from mm-hmm. uh, Naomi's house. They're doing incredible work in this area. And I know there's a ton of organizations, but at the very least we can vouch for her and Naomi's Noemi, uh, house because I think what they're doing is, yes. is absolutely remarkable. And if, you, if you're hearing more stories about this particular topic, let us know. Shoot us a message or something because you're right. It's like gut-wrenching, but also I think worthy of celebration and bizarre that we're not – at least in my kind of very narrow – corner of the internet there might be people listening they're like are you kidding me everyone i know was writing about this You're like okay that's that's very very possible but at least you know from where brian and i sit like this doesn't seem to be getting the attention that it deserves another uh really difficult story right here in our own hometown uh it says one dead several injured in shooting at restaurant in morgan park what's what's going on in this story
1: yeah, as you said, one person was killed and four others injured in a drive-by shooting Sunday afternoon at a restaurant on Chicago's far south side. It occurred right in the middle of the afternoon, 2 p.m. Shots were fired from a white SUV, killing a male customer who was dining outside. And it's, uh, you know, this is a very specific story on a weekend where there was, you know, whenever, especially summertime of year, there there just tends to be a lot of um, tragic violence in Chicago. And this is another story of it. And I think I read somewhere that uh, the number of people shot and killed over the weekend was nearing another record. And and it's just heartbreaking, man. I I don't know. These are the stories where I've admitted, like this is when I feel like I live far away from Chicago, even though, you know, it's a half hour up the road because the tragedy and, and the, and and the fear it must instill in people who live in these areas. I can't imagine it. And, uh, and, but, you know, we see it on the news and we see it uh, we read on the internet and it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's tragic about, uh, what seems to happen on a on a weekend by weekend basis, especially when it's warm out down in the city of Chicago.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things, too, that I think while I at times hesitate like, oh, gosh, do I do I want to share another Chicago shooting story on a Monday? I keep doing it because I think it's important to keep at the forefront of our mind Agreed. because and this is sort of the speed of information right now, it can be easy to like grieve it for half a second and then just move on to the next thing. Whether that's a good thing or a heartbreaking thing. And I, I do think, especially like you were saying, you know, you and I live in the suburbs, which can sometimes feel like a different world from the city. Um, That still matters. It should matter to us. It should matter to the church. It matters to God. And so we bring it up, not with a lot of commentary or even solutions, but at the very least to say, we should be talking about this. We should be praying, but we also should be a people of action. I think that's, increasingly hard to do, it seems, but I think really, really important. I want to end talking some COVID news. There's an article uh, out of CNN with sort of some stats that I'm going to read. And then I'm going to let, I'm going to let Brian take this one uh, from John MacArthur. There is no pandemic Uh, before that one though, real quick, more than uh, things you should know more than 25 million people have been infected with COVID-19 since the pandemic began and eight, eight hundred thousand forty two. Uh, oh, boy. I read numbers. Eight hundred forty two thousand have died, according to John Hopkins University. Global tally A CDC forecast projects more than two hundred thousand coronavirus deaths in the United States by September 19th. At least thirty six states have reported positive cases at colleges and universities in India, reported seventy eight thousand seven hundred and sixty one new cases in 24 hours and has now reached three million. Over three million cases in total, behind only the U.S. and Brazil. Uh, that alone is pretty frightening. Yeah. But I also wonder, like, is it completely frightening to you, or do you hear that and you think, yeah, but like, how do you how do you take in that information?
1: <laughs> it is so overwhelming, man. Every week we go with numbers, and there's new stats, and there's a new uh, there's a new chart, right? Like the whole thing that John MacArthur we're going to talk about here in a second is. The CDC saying only 6% of deaths had no com- comorbidities. And what exactly does that mean? And so, yeah, when I read that a thousand students at the University of Alabama have been positive this week or oh, since testing, that's scary to me. Like this is still a big deal, but yet I, it's kind of white noise to me a little bit. I know that's dangerous and I shouldn't admit it, uh, but the numbers have become a little bit of white noise for me.
0: Okay. So why don't why don't you then wrap us up with uh, a little bit of John MacArthur? Yes.
1: Yeah, so I just uh, really fast, just... Um, touched on that study that came out that a lot of people talk about. CDC said only 6% of COVID deaths uh, were people who died only from COVID, but uh, 94% from comorbidities that COVID uh, then came in and caused them to pass away. Uh, And you do with that with those stats that you want, but that's still a lot of people who've died and those people with comorbidities, most of them wouldn't have died without COVID. So people are pointing that out. But John MacArthur took that stat and got up in front of his church this week and said, because of these stats, there is no pandemic. And I'm just gonna just say it again. You can believe what you want about these stats or not even believe, but argue them. What do they mean this? But for John MacArthur to get up in an area uh, that has a big COVID problem and just proclaim there's no pandemic people are going to believe him and listen to him, and they're going to live as if there's no pandemic. And I just think it's it's reckless and dangerous. And John MacArthur, I'm just surprised, man, that every week he seems to be ratcheting it up more and more and more. But I think to from a pulpit to proclaim that there's no pandemic, I think is irresponsible and dangerous.
0: Well, at the very least, I'm sure Brian and I will be talking about that later this week, if not next, because, I mean, the stories just continue to get weirder and weirder with every passing day, but uh, either way, all of those articles are posted on our Facebook page. We'd love to know what you think of all of them. Uh, someone that we've quoted and referenced on the show a lot in the last year and a half is Karen Swallow Pryor. She is mm-hmm. a brilliant author and professor. If you're unfamiliar at the very least, go follow her on Twitter, but even more so, like read what she writes. It's That's really, right. really spot on, and she's been writing a lot about liberty, and I found this article to just be phenomenal. In a lot of ways, Brian, sort of what you and I have been saying, but much more articulate, mm-hmm. if that's fair, like yeah. I was reading and thinking, oh, that's that's how you you and I have been interacting with it, but said intelligently. So the, the article simply reads this at the headline, let Liberty University be a lesson in unchecked power. What's going on here?
1: Yeah. And, and another reason Karen Swallow Pryor, I think, has great insight here is because she used to be a professor at Liberty up to about right. a year ago. That's right. Uh, and also. On the side, anyone who's been hit by a bus and survived and continues working and writing deserves to be listened to. And that's her story. So here's how it goes. Uh, She writes When is a sex scandal not a sex scandal? When the scandal and the sex are the result of absolutely unchecked power. This week's headlines about the resignation of Jerry Falwell Jr. from his role as president at Liberty University, the world's largest evangelical university, may have centered on the salacious parts of a leader's downfall. A bizarre social media post featuring unzipped pants, a wife's affair with a pool attendant, and the husband's penchant for voyeurism. But those headlines don't capture the most important part of the story. See, some responding to the news have pointed, not surprisingly, To the hypocrisy of a leader whose ongoing behavior has so excessively violated the stated rules of the institution he leads. And while that double standard is a grievous aspect of this saga, even that is not the most important story. The story that needs to be seen, heard and heeded is the story of what happens when men and women have power, but no accountability. And there are so many stories Within this story, like the story of a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention and two Baptist seminaries who during his reign empowered and enabled at least two sex offenders and bullied two victims of sexual assault who had been entrusted to his care. Like the evangelical megachurch that responded to watchdog bloggers exposing egregious financial irregularities with a libel lawsuit, like the progressive megachurch pastor known for empowering and platforming women who made multiple unwanted advances toward a woman in his employment whose complaints went unheeded by the many people in power of the church. Like the Southern Baptist pastor, whose church gave him a standing ovation upon admitting and asking for forgiveness for sexually assaulting a teenager years before when he was a youth pastor. Like the CEO of a church planting network, whose pattern of spiritual abuse through bullying and intimidation was allowed through years of repeated complaints uh, from those serving under him. The list of these stories goes on and on. I can just pause you. And one of the sad things is uh, I could probably with a hundred percent certainty name who each of those people were because of the stories we've done over and over here. Yeah, uh, the sad. story goes on. Of course, these abuses of power are by no means limited to the churches and Christian institutions. One need only look to Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, media, Hollywood and wall street darlings, respectively to be reminded that sexual abuse by those that whose power is unchecked by the systems that uphold them knows no doctrine or creed. As the 19th century historian Lord Acton sagely observed, despotic power is always accompanied by corruption of morality. So let's pause there. There's so much more. We'll get into it. There's so much more good stuff here. Uh, But Ian, I, I know you and I have talked about this, but how about her framing not just the Falwell stories, but this litany of stories in evangelicalism and in Christendom around unchecked and unaccountable power?
0: Well, what I think is really important to outline too is that you know the references in this article are the ones that most people would know about because they were you know leaders of huge institutions. But this applies to small churches, yes, and small organizations and small universities too. This idea, this power dynamic, this is part of why you and I were even talking about this on Friday. This is why it fires me up so much. Like there is something to be said when someone says, "Hey, this Wall Street broker cheated on his wife." There's almost a party that's like, "Yeah, I mean." what else is new? You know what I mean? Like that's well, sort of, expect, but in the name of Christianity as a pastor or a Christian leader to, to carry the mantle of gentleness, grace, humility, forgiveness, transparency, and to then be doing those things behind the scenes to me, as part of it, makes all all of this that much ickier. Like we talk even about that, that local interview that Fawel did the day after the photo was, you know, kind of blowing up and he was, he was almost like, Joking about it and saying right. oh, I'll I'll be a good boy to me, and I was trying to I was trying to think really pastorally in that moment too because it made my blood boil. But I also thought, man, how long has it been since you've really been checked that you felt so much confidence, so much hubris that not only post the photo yourself, but then to almost be a a bit lackadaisical, a bit comical the day after when you're interview you know interviewing to explain yourself, there didn't seem to be contrition. And for me, it wasn't just because he was handed this it's because he had like swam in those waters for so long. Right, It was, it was almost as if he'd forgotten how to even feel the sense of like, Oh yeah, that was a terrible decision. And Oh, I probably put other people's jobs at risk. And that might've been confusing for people who are on the fence regarding faith and spirituality because of the position I hold. Like, and again, I don't know his heart and I want to be really clear to say, I'll, I don't, yeah. I'll never know his heart. And that's, we, we do know the umbrella is, but that's not necessarily for us. To judge, But it doesn't mean that the Christ follower doesn't need to discern. So when she lists all these examples, like, yeah, there's a there's a problem here. And for us to simply say, like, well, what happens in your house happens in your house? Like, we have a responsibility, I think, as Christ follow. I love how she ends it, by the way, because she says since the 2016 election, it has become axiomatic that evangelicals are enamored by the idea of access to power. Indeed, the story of Jerry Falwell's fall is inextricably linked to his infatuation with President Trump and his access to the Oval Office. There's a deep, tragic irony in the fact that one of the traditional hallmarks of both conservatism and evangelicalism is the distrust of centralized power. Yet here, conservatism, evangelicalism stands and it falls in the name of conservatism. We conserve the wrong things in the name of evangelism. We evangelize for the wrong gods Mm. in the name of religion. We harm those entrusted to our care. Jesus had severe words for such actions. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So Mm. watch yourselves. It's long past time to watch the watchers. The bodies, hearts, and souls of the victims and the vulnerable are at stake. I I wanted to like stand out of my chair, right. and shout amen man of those words because I think it's so pointed and so needed and so timely.
1: As I think about those those litany of stories, like you said, that she the well known ones that she listed, it struck me that people never go like you know what we're going to hire this this person and we're going to give them unaccountable power. We're just going to let them yeah. do whatever they want. But right. but it, it is this slow kind of like a little bit of giving here, a little bit of giving here. And, oh, look at the success here. And you start making excuses. And all of a sudden you've got this kind of unaccountable power that you talk about. And I think you made a great point going, this is just as easy in a small church of 100 with the past, the single, you know, the, the solo pastor who's totally. can wield that same sort of power uh, as the mega church pastor or the college president. but. Uh, I, I think we all need to learn from these stories as we do them one after another going, hey, this is the check that we need to make. And this is the this is the thing we need to be careful for. Where in our organization, our church, our school, wherever else, where are people unaccountable? And it's often the most powerful who are unaccountable and it's the most vulnerable then who are victimized. And I think that the days of us just kind of turning a blind eye to that have to be over, especially for those of us who follow Jesus.
0: That's right. It is. It is really difficult to read the words of Jesus and to not realize that His heart breaks for the marginalized, the exploited, the abused. And if you find yourself gravitating more and more towards the positions of power or the postures of power, uh, Jesus does offer, I think, some pretty sobering words to a heart bent like that. And I think, I think what she puts is right on time to watch the watchers. It isn't because. You don't like Liberty University or your local church. In fact, it might be because you love it so much that you want to see its leaders held accountable, not only for the safety of people, but to the glory of God. And I think that's that's really, really admirable. Big props to Karen for this article. Super grateful for her and her wisdom. Brian, happy trail mix day, by the way. I forgot to mention that earlier that's so ironic. I had trail mix earlier today. <laughs> it's like I knew <laughs> you said this every time it's been a food related holiday. You're like, that's so ironic. I just had mint chocolate had chip. Ice cream. Yes. <laughs> You're, you have a very uh, unique prophetic skill and a very yeah. narrow margin. You just simply, it's also national South Carolina day. Do you have any, any reason to celebrate South Carolina? I mean, I've been to South Carolina. It's an enjoyable state, but no, nothing really, not nothing. Also today. National matchmaker day. So, Okay, well, I'm not sure what to do with that. Anywho, uh, real quickly, before Brian says some words to us, you can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash the common good. And wherever it is, you get podcasts, you know, the drill, subscribe, rate, review. And then, as Brian says, unsubscribe, unrate, unreview, and then do it again, because yes, that helps. (laughs) It doesn't. But uh, before we get into this article, let me just read the headline because it's so weird. Uh, modern-day minstrel show insult of RNC speakers draws harsh reactions to MSNBC guest host. That's a mouthful, but uh, we're going to get into it. Before we do, though, Brian wants to tell you about something.
1: Yeah, something going on here at the station because seeing Israel is a lifetime memory. But taking a Bible prophecy tour of Israel could change your life. So right now, you can enter for a chance to win a Bible prophecy tour to Israel next March uh, with Dr. Robert Jeffers. Enter today at 1160hope.com and put in the keyword Israel.
0: Were those your own words, Brian? That Was that just
1: off the dome? No, no, no. I'm reading. I'm, I'm, I had the paper put in front of me and I read it like a good employee.
0: <laughs> uh, all right, so here's the headline again. Modern day minstrel show insult of RNC speakers draws harsh reaction to MSNBC guest host. Guest host Tiffany DeCross joked that the RNC was not an SNL sketch. This is an article by uh, Peter Aiken. What is going on here? Yeah, it just highlights
1: so much of what's wrong with especially uh-huh. our cable news culture. Like, and so let me tell you what's going on. An MSNBC guest host turned heads on Sunday when she labeled the Republican National Convention, which featured several black speakers as quote, a modern day minstrel show. Uh, subbing in for Joy Reid on her Sunday show, A.M. Reid, Tiffany D. Cross dedicated a portion of her show to commenting on this past week's RNC. She said this, That was not a Saturday Night Live sketch. Uh, After noting that the RNC hosted at least a dozen African-American speakers, she said, I watched the Republican convention and seeing the slew of black speakers that they had, it really looked like a modern day minstrel show. The reference to minstrel shows in which people wore blackface to imitate African-Americans in song and dance numbers provided her statement with an uncomfortable tone. As Newsbusters contributing editor Mark uh, Finkelstein noted, Cross effectively labeled Senator Tim Scott and football great Herschel Walker, among others, as minstrels, which would almost imply that they were merely pretending to be African-American. Cross, I assure you that none of the black patriots that were speaking great about President Trump and his accomplishments were not wearing blackface, one user said. And it goes on and on to give feedback. But the reason I, I was just taken aback by the story, maybe I shouldn't be anymore. But the reason I was taken aback is because this is somebody on the Democrat side doing what often people on MSNBC or whatever accuse people on Fox News of doing uh, as painting all African-Americans or all white people or all this or all that with a broad brush. Because she's basically saying here is that you if you were an African-American who were to support the president for whatever reason you want to support the president uh, in his reelection bid, then you're not actually a real African-American person. And that that sort of rhetoric is so unhelpful, uh, whether it be race or whether it be religion. You and I talked about last week uh, people saying if you vote Democrat, you're going to hell or you uh, you've lost your soul or whatever else it might yeah, be. Right. These kind of statements are so unhelpful and it just pours gasoline on the already ugly divide that we are, as opposed to a more civil conversation that says, hey, she could say as an African-American, I don't understand how anybody uh, could support President Trump. And then having somebody on the show to help explain and have a debate in that way, Uh, Fox News does this, MSNBC does this, it just adds to everything that's wrong uh, with especially the kind of cable news, social media, hot take culture that we live in. And all it's doing is pushing people to their polls and uh, kind of, in my idea, just kind of lengthening the divide that exists.
0: What I find, I mean, I found a lot of it troubling, to be honest. Yeah. What seems weird to me is that it, it seems to almost be insulting, like the consciousness of the people of color who chose as best we can tell of their own volition to stand on that platform, to be a part of that gathering. Like that's not, it's not, I mean, a a minstrel show that comparison to me. And again, who knows? Maybe the whole point of the tweet was so that people like you and I would be talking about it. You know, like I don't, I don't totally ever believe that someone isn't doing it for the clicks. That's always somewhere in my brain. Like, okay, does this person actually believe this or are they trying to be provocative? Or are they trying to stir things up? You kind right. of, you kind of mentioned how it seems like both sides seem to be really into, and that's obviously not the entirety of both sides at all, but this is certainly not anything that everyone isn't a part of to some degree or every camp, I guess isn't True. a part of to some degree, but yeah, to go to go that far seems to really diminish. Like you were saying the reality that someone, you know, who looks like me or looks like somebody else can't have a differing opinion. I know that people feel very strongly about things, and I think people should feel strongly about things. I think there's a way to feel strongly about things that is still honoring to the other person. And you and I talk a lot about hey, whether you disagree with this person in every conceivable way, there's still an image bearer, and it doesn't mean yeah. that people don't you know sometimes end up in jail for their consequence for their for their errors. That still happens, but to just simply make a sweeping statement like, wow, well, they. Obviously, aren't thinking clearly, or they obviously are under some sort of spell or something. Otherwise, why would they be there? To me, is is not great reporting at the very least, right? And that kind of rhetoric, I could see, you know, leading to other sorts of things that are, are just not helpful.
1: Yeah, this just adds to what we've talked about about my view, at least. That cable news is just they, they. This is what they do. They just pour gasoline, but also again, let's be a culture. Let's be a people who vehemently disagree with each other. Like she could, she could think, I don't understand how a fellow African-American could support the president and then have that debate on her show. That would actually be good television. Like have that debate as opposed to calling into question. If somebody supports president Trump and is an African-American, they're kind of a minstrel or an uncle Tom or whatever else you you might want to put in there. It's just Not helpful. The same way we talked about last week with the church, when people going, oh, you voted Democrat, you're going to hell, you can't be a Christian. That's not helpful. Uh, Let's have these discussions. Let's go back and forth. And the irony is, I think it's statements like this that make people angry that, you know, she desperately doesn't want Donald Trump to get reelected. I think it's statements like this that are going to help him have a better chance to get reelected and then vice versa. But man, if you're out there and you just demonize the other side and I'm using air quotes, if you could see it, if this wasn't radio, uh, if you demonize the other side, it's just not uh, that's not what our culture is built on. That's not what our our country is built on. It's built on debate. It's built on difference of opinion uh, and, and, and hashing those out, but still being uh, united as uh, Americans or it, united as Christians. but vehemently disagreeing to the point of just yelling and going at it, but not making these broad caricatures of one another. That's where it's not helpful. And this is why I'm just so fed up with cable news, because I think this is their basic playbook here. And uh, so many people fall for it.
0: Do you you think that you can demonize an idea without demonizing a person?
1: I think so. Probably. Um,
0: Yeah. You you can can call something out as like, Hey, this isn't a, difference of opinion on a policy like i i think that action that you did or support is straight up evil do you think you can can do that without demonizing a person
1: i do i do and we could another time we could get into what that would look like but i think i think you can certainly attack ideas and and even sinful behaviors without telling the person uh you're worthless or you're you know in this you're not actually who you say or whatever else it might be i think so
0: all right, everyone. It is the home stretch. I feel like home stretch is usually how you describe something that you're not enjoying, like hmm. the home stretch of a long road trip or home stretch of a final exam. I probably should stop using that for the end of the show because that's going to subliminally subliminally communicate that this is an unenjoyable thing. Maybe it's not sublim Maybe people are like, yeah, no joke. This yeah. is I make my kids listen to this as punishment. Anyway, <laughs> uh, this is the final segment of the day. <laughs> couple of things that you're probably aware of. We have a Facebook page, the common good radio show. You can review and like that page. You can share it. You can send us a message. We also have a podcast. You can listen to that. Listen to twice the speed, half the speed, subscribe, rate review. All of that is uh, super helpful. And we're really, really grateful for everyone who has already done that. Here's an article. I don't know that we've ever actually tackled this specific article topic but i find it interesting and it's well written it's by jason allen over at churchleaders.com and he says you can't love jesus without mm-hmm. loving his local church is this a conversation that you've ever had brian oh absolutely and you okay. hear people
1: yeah and uh, you'll hear people say whether they say it like that or you know i believe it's, it's all about me and jesus but i don't need the church or i don't uh, like the church and yeah absolutely i hear this often
0: Okay. So let me, uh, let me read how he begins it. And again, the whole thing's over on the Facebook page, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pick it apart a little. He says, have you ever heard someone say I'm into Jesus, but not the church, like the local church. My first encounter with Jesus, yes, church, no theology came as a newly minted pastor. My wife and I were hosting an open house in the church parsonage about half a dozen young families attended and all was going as planned until I began to talk about church membership. Mm -hmm. One gentleman in attendance pressed me on the topic, arguing the concept was unbiblical I squirmed and tried to answer. Undaunted, he continued to press his case. The conversation caught me a bit flat-footed and forced me into an on-the-spot apologetic for the local church. For a moment, I felt uncertain and embarrassed by my lack of a clear answer. And yet, what I intuitively knew then and have come to understand more fully is that Christianity is inextricably linked to the local church. In fact, the local church is the New Testament's expression of Christianity, the New Testament depicts the Christian and the local church together like hand in glove. Mm. As I serve the church now more broadly as a seminary president, I consistently bump into two unhealthy extremes, both of which, uh, what is that word? Misestimate. Oh, that's a totally easy word. Miss. It's I don't a know weird looking
1: word. word. It's a weird. You want to know word. how I
0: was going to read it? What? How? Misestimate. <laughs> <laughs> of which misestimate the role of the church. Okay, so we're back on track. Here are the two extremes he talks about. <laughs> First and most common is spiritual individualism. This extreme, this extreme, so prioritizes a, a personal relationship with Christ that it forgets the role of the church altogether. To many evangelicals, conversion is a personal encounter with Christ and growth. And uh, with Christ and growth in Christ is two. One is nourished spiritually through books, conferences, podcasts, parish church ministries, and Bible studies. The other extreme. is is an overly institutional approach to Christianity. Interesting. Um, He says, In its most unhealthy form, it seems in traditional Roman Catholicism that holds no salvation outside the church and necessitates receiving the sacraments for salvation. But some evangelicals operate just one tick away. This institutional error equates salvation with church membership and Christian growth with church activity. Uh, I'll pause there briefly. This is kind of like, right in both of our wheelhouses. What do you think so far of what he's got to say?
1: Yeah, I think uh, it is an interesting conversation. I've had this with a couple different people about church membership uh, and, and had the conversation like, you know what membership is just an opportunity to link yourself more deeply with the community, but it's not what saves you. It's not any of this kind of stuff. Uh, But I do think the overall premise of, uh, we were never meant to do an individual faith, that we need people in our lives and that 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 is the church, uh, that churches are messy, they're frustrating, uh, they look different, uh, but that we need a community of faith in which we are being spurred on and spurring one another on, uh, I think is a very biblical concept. And I do think that uh, in our culture, there is uh, certainly, uh, you hear it often, people Kind of over individualize. It's just Jesus and me, and uh, that's not biblical. That's not what we were uh, called. What's not what we were called to? We were called to community to do this together, and that that grows us. Even though it can be really frustrating and messy at times.
0: Well, yeah. Let me just read a little more of what he wrote. He says both of these extremes that I mentioned earlier uh, misunderstand the Christian life. Conversion is an individual experience that's intended to become a congregational reality. That's a super succinct definition. I love that. It's simply impossible to conceptualize New Testament Christianity apart from the local church. Another common misconception concerns the church universal and the church local. The church universal refers to all the redeemed in the history of the world. The church universal is often called the invisible church because we ultimately aren't able to know who or how many comprise it. And yet, Almost every reference of, quote, the church in the New Testament is about the local church. And by local church, I mean a group of Christians who have covenanted together to gather regularly for worship and ministry. And real quickly, I'll pause there because that's actually the language that we would use rather than membership. We talked about covenant relationship and what that actually looks like. Uh, Again, many today argue that church membership um, isn't actually in the Bible, but the early church did keep a role, at least in some form. We see the early church. Mentioning the number of additions and baptisms, we see them talking about both inclusion in and exclusion from the church. How could the New Testament authors report on these matters without some kind of membership role? More broadly, when you survey the New Testament, you see it's all about the church. In Matthew 16, Jesus declared, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus fulfilled this promise through his own death, having shed his blood for the church. That's Acts twenty twenty eight. The book of Acts begins with the birth of the church through Peter's preaching at Pentecost. The book continues as the church spreads throughout the Mediterranean region and beyond through the apostles' preaching and the power of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the New Testament epistles were all written to or about churches. In them, the authors explain what churches are to believe and teach, how they are ought to minister and organize themselves. At the end of the New Testament, the book of the Re- book of Revelation, the Apostle John records Jesus' seven letters to seven churches and punctuates the Bible's conclusion with Jesus's dramatic return for his bride, the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll stop there. My guess is you probably agree with a good deal of that. But do you have any any pushback to what he said so far?
1: Uh, I don't I not necessarily, Uh, you know, I think people can get all hung up on, like you said, on the word membership and what exactly that means. But I uh, I think putting our focus back on the overall point he says it later when local churches gather the sum is greater than the parts especially as it pertains mm-hmm. to their collective worship collective ministry and collective witness i think it's a powerful way to put it it makes me think about the interview we did earlier uh, with Aaron Nequist and i and i think about how he was talking about I, I was really challenged by when he said I. I tried to go from just picking five songs to taking our church on a on a weekly journey, a worship mm. journey, and that had this sense of like we're in this together and we're moving together and we're we're doing this together as opposed to I'm coming and just feed me and that so I can leave. I think this, I I think the church has an opportunity too in a very individualized culture to reclaim this kind of we're all in this together, this communal. Uh, but it's certainly difficult. It's really difficult, especially in the age of COVID, for sure.
0: Yeah, and there's all sorts of other implications to this because he he references a lot of passages that talk about you know being committed to the gathering, which I'm sure a lot of people listen, them, like, yeah, I would love to be committed to the <laughs> gathering, and I can't right now. Let me just read how he ends it. He quotes C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, who once said, "If I had if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it." If I had found one, I would have spoiled it, for I would have not been the perfect church after I became a member. Still imperfect as it is, is the dearest place on earth to us. It's vital to understand that there is no perfect church. That's because every local church is comprised of sinners, redeemed sinners. So don't be a perennial church shopper. As my seminary professor, Chip Stam often reminded the class, the maturing believer is easily edified. Ooh, that's good. God uses each of his children's gifts in a unique way to fulfill the mission he has for the church as a whole. Make sure... You're upholding your end of the bargain. After all, a lone ranger Christian doesn't make a good witness for Christ. Ultimately, Jesus has redeemed you uh, to be a creature in community, a Christian living out the gospel in covenant with other Christians in a local church. I realize now that we're all the way through this, that might have sounded a little self-serving since you and I are both pastors of local churches but I man, I really do believe that. Right. And I, I think that there's so much temptation to do, like you're saying, the me and buddy Jesus thing, which I get the appeal, but I, I just don't think it's biblical. And I'm sure we'll have this conversation as we continue to kind of navigate COVID reality. But that, as always, is up on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. And that wraps up today's Monday show. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you, my friends, have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.